to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The Civil War ended in 1865, but the battle over what it meant only began. That battle battle would reach a new peak in the 1930s. Few veterans remained to say what really happened, at least as they remembered it, and the threats of depression and looming world war made the experience of the Civil War seem relevant in ways it hadn't been before. We'll learn about how everyone from reactionary Southern agrarians to revolutionary Popular Front communists tried to enlist Civil War memory on their side. From Professor Nina Silber, author of This War Ain't Over, Fighting the Civil War in New Deal America. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex in Greenville, North Carolina. It's my home office on Oxford Road. Uh, not on the campus of East Carolina University, not speaking for the university, uh, speaking only for myself, and my guest will certainly do the same, as we always do here at Civil War Talk Radio. It is good to be back in Greenville. The last month uh, has been uh, a lot of travel, been away. Uh, Now I'm home and able to focus on the important things in life, like the uh, United States uh, Women's World Cup, effort, which is ongoing as we speak, 
And my alma mater, University of Michigan, is playing uh, this very evening, uh, Wednesday, June 26th, for the national title in, uh, in baseball. Not a sport Michigan typically excels in because the weather's not very good there in the spring, but they made it to the finals. Uh, by the time you're listening to this, I'm sure uh, we'll know if Michigan was the national champion or the national runner-up. Either way, good job. Go Blue. Well, as I said, there's been a lot of travel this month. I owe a lot of you email if you've written to me and I haven't gotten back yet. I'm, I'm catching up, but last month it was this hallowed ground touring uh, the, the battlefield sites of Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. That was followed shortly afterward by the 75th anniversary trip to Normandy to uh, celebrate, not celebrate, that's not the right word, to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the invasion of Europe by the Allies in 1944. And then last week, it was the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, uh, a, a really wonderful event where last week's show was recorded just the day before you heard it, uh, if you listened live, and uh, a fair number of people did, which is not not the usual way, but uh, it was a great show, and I've gotten a lot of uh, good feedback about it, having as guests two students from Gettysburg College talking about their experience as budding Civil War historians, and it, it was encouraging to me to hear what they are up to, but I'm around students all the time. I know that the caricature lots of older people have of the useless younger generation is no more accurate than the caricature our parents had of uh, the, the useless hippies that we were back in the 70s, or some of you perhaps even in the 60s. Uh, uh, the old folks always have a, a dire view of, of the next generation coming along, and the uh, the discussion last week, I hope, shattered that misconception for a few listeners to hear people much younger than we are who are deeply interested in the Civil War and are going to carry Civil War studies uh, safely into the rest of the 21st century. Well, this is uh, tonight the last show of the 2018-19 season. We've gone a little deeper into June than usual since we had to miss some shows for travel. Uh, after tonight, the summer hiatus is here. I'll be back with you live at the end of August 2019. Uh, in the meantime, I'm here in Greenville teaching uh, a summer course online. I, I recorded two lectures today, which is a lot. Uh, also gave an orientation session on campus. I have to say that teaching online, which I've never done before, is harder work than teaching face-to-face and yet less rewarding in terms of the student contact. I'm not sure I will want to do this again, but I thought I should try it so I could speak intelligently about the prospect. And uh, I will say I've, I've met more than once people who are not in the world of higher education, but who have the impression that since education in their view is nothing but information transmission, uh, then online education is the answer to our dreams. Just have one Civil War professor lecture online to the whole country, fire all the rest of the professoriate, think of the money we'd save. Uh, I say let's apply it to Civil War studies as well. Just have one book come out each year about the Civil War, put all the rest of us out of work. Um, 
Well, if you're listening to the show, you know how absurd this is. You know how rich the field of Civil War studies is, how we learn something new and different every week on the show, new surprises, new information comes out, new interpretations are developed. Uh, history is far beyond the transmission of basic facts. But unfortunately, there are those people who, who don't know that, and even more unfortunately, many of them get elected and end up in state legislatures where they try to dictate how teaching should be done. Uh, for them, and, and if you're listening, you can try this yourself, a, a simple thought experiment, uh, figure out what you do for a living, and then uh, whether you're a doctor, business owner, airline pilot, whatever you do, and then consider, would you be able to do your job better if your professional judgment were to be replaced by rules passed by legislators who have never done a day of your work in their lives? Um, the odds are the answer is no. Uh, certainly the same is true of history teaching. Uh, but I'm preaching to the choir here. You know how rich and complex history is and how a, a single online lecturer is no substitute for uh, interaction with students. Uh, so end of the sermon. Uh, nobody likes a sermon anyway. Let's move on. As evidence of the richness of the Civil War field, I can say for the first time, I think in the history of the show, and the show is going to mark its 15th anniversary in October, uh, the entire fall lineup is already more or less penciled in. Uh, every show has a, a book, an author, uh, a speaker lined up already. I don't think I've ever done that before, not because I'm working harder, but because more and more people are producing great material and are contacting me about uh, having a conversation on the show. Keep an eye on www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney will tell you who's going to be on the show once I send it to him. Sometime this summer, we'll put up next season's lineup. And while you're there, don't forget to click on the PayPal button. Feel free to contribute to the show. Express your solidarity by helping me buy extra vats of, what do I have on the table today? We have lime-flavored seltzer with other natural flavors, uh, other beverages of that nature, or uh, expensive bourbon, whatever I want, because it's not a tax-deductible donation. It's just a gift. Uh, but your contributions are welcome, as are your emails. Don't forget, uh, I'll remind you in August, but also September 2019 will be the 2019 Civil War Roundtable Congress in St. Louis, Missouri. Look it up online. Check it out. If you're a member of your local Civil War Roundtable, uh, consider attending or having someone from your group go and come back with the best practices that are being done around the country. And if you're not a member of your local Roundtable, then you should be. Uh, there, there's probably one within driving distance. Check it out and uh, meet some like-minded people. Well, tonight we talk with a like-minded person in the sense of sharing our collective interest in the Civil War. Professor Nina Silber returns to the show after astonishingly 10 years since uh, she was last a guest. Uh, Nina, welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you, Jerry. It's great to be back. Well, it has been far too long. Uh, your book, This War Ain't Over, Fighting the Civil War in New Deal America, is just uh, absolutely fascinating, thought-provoking, uh, enjoyed enjoyed it thoroughly. 
But I want to start by uh, asking uh, not about the book, but about your father, Erwin Silver. Oh, who, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, reading the, the introduction, you mentioned him, uh, and I smacked my hand to my forehead and said, how did I not make that connection? I grew up with songs of the Civil War. Uh, so great. That's so great to hear. The, the um, book that he edited, uh, I, I've called square dances and played fiddle for 40 years. I've, I've always seen a deep connection between uh, Civil War era music and everything else we do, as, as well as politics. And your father was a major figure in the, the folk revival of the 20th century. It's, that's, yes, that's true. He was. Um, you know, it's, it's funny because um, when I started talking about this book, and, you know, I'd sort of mention how my father had done this book, A Songs of the Civil War, and all of these Civil War historians, you know, who I've now known for so long, they said, wow, that's your father, I love that book, (laughs) you know, it's been so useful for me, I think it's the best compilation of Civil War music, so it's been a really nice way to kind of hear people's reactions and responses to that book, Um, yeah, so so that is, you're right, that is um, the way I start this story. It, well, it, it's it's very appropriate, and it, again, I'm sure there are many of us who, who who know that book and enjoy it. Let me ask about this book. My first reaction on seeing the topic was, well, you know, there's we're we're always looking for new Civil War topics. We're always reaching out for something. Here's a book on the Civil War in the 1930s. Is this a bridge too far? Is this overreaching? <laughs> uh, now, I want to say I've completely changed my mind since reading it, but but how did you come to this topic? Right. I, I can see it's, there's something a little disorienting about thinking about mm-hmm. the Civil War in the 1930s. Um, and, and I will say that I don't think it was the foremost topic that everybody was talking about in the 1930s. <laughs> but what I do think is that the Civil War, the way people told stories about the Civil War, got a kind of resonance during the 1930s. And in, and in some ways, the, the, many of the narratives and stories really changed during the 1930s, uh, and it kind of, you know, gave us new ways of thinking about the war, which I think continued to the present day. The the Civil War was in its 75th anniversary in the 1930s, and we are currently in the 75th anniversary of the Second World right. War. Uh, right. Do, do you see parallels there? Yeah, well, you know, it is interesting, because, um, that, and that was one thing I was interested in about the 1930s, you know, that it was, I knew that it was a moment when people were going to be commemorating the war. So it's, those commemorations are always a kind of interesting point of checking in to see how people are thinking about the war. Um, So, yeah, it is interesting. um, So there was the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg was in 1938. Um, There was a big commemoration event uh, at Gettysburg in, you know, on the 75th anniversary, Franklin Roosevelt was there. Uh, it was the uh, at the same time that they unveiled the Eternal Peace Light Memorial, mm-hmm. uh, which is still a statue that stands one of the monuments on the Gettysburg battlefield. Um, and you know, they invited veterans. There were, I think, at the time, about 8,000 veterans still living, at least in terms of what the federal government had been able to identify, and I think about 2,000 of that group were actually there uh, in 1938. Uh, so there was definitely you know, a lot of attention being paid to those veterans, but, but here's where I think there might be some difference in terms of the 75th anniversary um, today of the Second World War. There was a lot of 
there's a very kind of ambivalent relationship to the veterans, to war commemoration. I think a reflection of that period of isolationism and disillusionment that followed the First World War. Uh, it's true that there was already in 1938, you know, signs of uh, conflict in Europe. But I think for many Americans, you know, a lot of the language they used when they talked about the Gettysburg commemoration was had a very strong anti-war tone. You know, a very strong sense of World War One has taught us we don't want to see that kind of thing again. So again, you know, that's why you have that uh, Peace Light monument as sort of the main, uh, you know symbol that is associated with that 75th uh, commemoration in Gettysburg. Yeah, the, the, so I think uh, that might be a difference. No, you, you said 8,000 veterans. That's of the entire war, not, not obviously not just the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, right. But that, right. that's an interesting comparison that they were uh, you point out only two monuments on the Gettysburg field are, are built in the 30s and, and the Peace Light Memorial on Oak Ridge is one of them. And that the veterans are, uh, you know, are in this anti-war, there's an anti-war moment. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned in the introduction, I was in Normandy for the 75th anniversary of June 6th there, and there were a number of 90-year-old plus uh, American and and, uh, uh, British veterans, and everywhere they went, if you saw them either at the ceremony or at the airport or anywhere, you saw a guy in a wheelchair with a... Uh, American Legion right. type hat. Uh, people just burst into applause everywhere. Uh, mm. There were there was a, no controversy or, or nuance about how about these guys, and and I right. don't get that feeling about the Civil War veterans in the 30s. We're right at our first break. I'm going to stop on that point and come back and ask you about it when we resume. Uh, we're talking sure. tonight with Nina Silber, author of This War Ain't Over. Fighting the Civil War in New Deal America. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, 
business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Nina Silber, author of This War Ain't Over, Fighting the Civil War in New Deal America. We were talking about the contrasting receptions received by veterans of D-Day in 2019 and those of Civil War veterans in 1938, 75 years after Gettysburg. Uh, so did did the, the disappearance of veterans start to affect the way the Civil War is remembered? Did they lose their influence as they pass? Yes, I, that's, I think that's definitely true, and, and it was one reason why I was interested in the 1930s, um, because it struck me that the 1930s were a moment when the people who had been there in the 1860s were gone. People who had fought the battles, slaves who had been freed, uh, you know, men and women on the home front, it was the first-hand participants were not part of the picture, and and so what I see taking place in the 1930s is sort of this very strong shift away from the memories and, you know, the the stories being told by those who had been there. And what I call, you know, I think the 30s sees new memory makers, you know, new people, no connection, but they're kind of in the business of telling stories in some way about the past, and they become very prominent in the way the story of the Civil War is told. Uh, You know, Hollywood being sort of a prime example when you see the kinds of movies that come out during the 1930s, um, again, without very much connection to things that veterans actually experienced or the people of the time actually experienced, but they have, you know, their own agenda, and they're telling their own kinds of stories. Well, movies brings up uh, the obvious connection everybody has is to Gone with the Wind. But right. you tell a story about uh, a movie I have never seen, uh, So Red the Rose. Uh, ah, So Red the Rose, yeah. It, it, tell us about that movie. What what did it mean and, and why, why did you focus on it? So So Red the Rose, it was based on a novel um, uh, that was written by... Stark Young, who was one of the uh, Southern agrarians, uh, you know, the I'll Take My Stand movement. Um, mm-hmm. So he wrote a, a very kind of sentimental, I would say very heavily lost cause, you know, sort of mourning the, the, the lost way of life of the Old South. Um, and so he wrote a novel which was then um, turned into a movie. Uh, it was one of the early movies of the, 19, I think it was 1934, um, so, so it predates Gone with the Wind by, you know, five or six years. Um, 
it, it, to me, it was an interesting movie because, um, well, one, it was a spectacular failure. Uh, you know, people didn't really like the movie because it didn't have a lot of uh, excitement. It uh, had a very kind of dry, almost sort of too historical telling of the of the story. Um, it was interesting to me too because when So Red the Rose was made and when it was being publicized, the producer thought that they could kind of get people's interest because. Uh, by by um, calling on the United Daughters of the Confederacy, who are still a kind of, you know, going proposition into the 1930s, you know, still have a fairly sizable membership. So, you know, he tries to use the United Daughters of the Confederacy to sell the movie, to get them to hold, you know, parties and opening celebrations for the movie. But it really, it, it, to me, it's, it, it's, it's a movie that kind of suggests the old way of telling a Civil War story with these kind of older perspectives that doesn't really capture people's interests. You know, it, the, the contrast between a movie like So Red the Rose and Gone with the Wind is pretty dramatic, that Gone with the Wind has, you know, a kind of spectacular look about it. It has a kind of sexy look about it. It has, you know, it does things that kind of push the envelope in terms of the language that's used. You know, if you remember, Rhett Butler says, I don't give a damn, and that was a very controversial thing. I mean, there's a, obviously a lot of other things about Gone with the Wind, too, but but it, it was it was a kind of revealing way about how the the way of telling the Civil War story was going to change. The other obvious factor for the 1930s is, of course, the Great Depression, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 clearly that must have affected the way people uh, then conceptualized the, the Civil War experience based on on their own experience, not with a war, but with a, an economic disaster. Right, and so one of the things that I talk about is I think that um, the lost cause and the history of the Confederacy and white Southerners in general, white slaveholding Southerners even, get a kind of respect in the 1930s. There's a kind of empathy that exists on the part of Americans, I would say white Americans especially, who feel that they have gone through their own economic catastrophe and disaster, and who feel especially that, you know, that the, the impact that the Depression has had on white Americans especially kind of underscores why the Depression has been so uh, traumatic. Uh, and so they feel a kind of empathy, I think, for the white South of the 1860s that has experienced you know, as they can see, especially in a movie like Gone with the Wind, experiences its own incredibly dramatic economic decline. Um, so so that w- kind of, I think, lends the whole Lost Cause story a certain relevance, a certain appeal. Um, you know, I, I found people who, for example, wrote fan letters to Margaret Mitchell after they had read Gone with the Wind, and they would say, you know, I feel just like Scarlett O'Hara, these would be women who would say, you know, I'm also kind of struggling to hold my family together. I'm, you know, trying to uh, just get by, and I feel like, you know, that story of, of just trying to get by that Scarlett goes through also speaks to me uh, living in the 1930s. So, so that was, I think, a very powerful uh, it was a very powerful way of underscoring that lost cause message again. Now, on the other hand, the the Civil War is is won by the North. The federal government's forces ultimately win the war, 
And right. there's an argument uh, you make that the the uh, federal government in the 1930s, uh, the New Deal administration of, of Franklin Roosevelt, uh, can use Civil War memory to support the argument that this is a problem of such such uh, dimension that only the federal government can solve it, and thus right. uh, greater federal power is an acceptable thing. Right, exactly. And, and so I think one thing that you get, and so this is why I think, again, one of the things that was interesting to me about the 1930s um, was it wasn't simply all about the lost cause, which had mm-hmm. been such a dominant narrative and a dominant way that people understood the Civil War story for so long, that what you get in the 1930s are, in a way you hadn't really before, competing narratives. Competing narratives, different ways of telling the Civil War story. And one source of this, I think you're right, is from the federal government, uh, a federal, the federal government sort of understanding the importance of using federal power to alleviate people's suffering. Uh, and that then kind of opened the door to these, to a kind of incredible cult admiration, whatever you might call it, of Abraham Lincoln. Um, and so Abraham Lincoln in some ways emerges as the most important Civil War figure of all during the 1930s. He is a very powerful kind of folk hero. Uh, you know, he's, of course, the subject of this multi-volume biography by Carl Sandburg. He's featured in a lot of movies of the period. Um, and, and, you know, the thing about Lincoln, too, is it's not as if the 1930s are the first time that Lincoln becomes a big cultural icon, but I think he's a very different kind of cultural icon in the 1930s than he had been previously. You know, if you think about um, Birth of a Nation or some of the other moments when Abraham Lincoln appears, he's actually a kind of weak figure. Uh, he He's a very kind of emotional figure. He's often celebrated prior to the 1930s because, you know, he's just going to help everybody get together. But he's not actually figured or presented as a very powerful figure. But in the 1930s, he is. And I think, again, it has a lot to do with the New Deal agenda, with uh, symbolizing, you know, the, the, or having the symbol of the federal government uh, taking on the kind of power that Roosevelt was taking on. A lot of people made parallels. Roosevelt himself did uh, between what Lincoln was doing in the 1860s and what Roosevelt was doing in the 1930s. Sandberg did that, uh, you know, different New Deal politicians. I, somebody used the phrase at one point, you know, Abraham Lincoln was a New Dealer of the 1850s and 60s. You know, so they were definitely kind of uh, establishing this idea of, of this uh, connection between Roosevelt and Lincoln. So if yeah. if the depression represents, uh, I mean, you make the argument that uh, people analogize uh, the depression and economic uh, catastrophe to slavery. That that workers yeah. in the United States, uh, by which people at the time primarily mean white male workers, are are enslaved to the system. They have terrible jobs or no jobs at all. Uh, Right. The system has, has broken down, and they are being enslaved. And the solution to slavery in 1863 was Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation. So now right. it's 1933, and we need a new Lincoln to emancipate right. white people from economic slavery. Right. 
Right, and 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 you know, it it, it sounds almost too obvious, but but I feel like this this that is that is the kind of story that is unfolded during the 1930s. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, the language of slavery is very is used constantly. People will use slavery in all kinds of ways in the 1930s. They'll talk about white male factory workers as slaves. They will talk about some people use the phrase the whole South is like a slave to the North. Um, or they'll talk about agricultural workers, but but really, what keeps what people keep coming back to is the idea that what the depression has, the, the sort of real tragedy and trauma of the depression is the way it's affected white people. That we sort of know African Americans have suffered. Yes, their suffering is historic. It goes back into the past. But but this kind of new feature of the depression is basically this enslavement of white people. Uh, and so that that then kind of puts this, you know, again, you, this connection is made between Lincoln, who frees the slaves of the 1860s, and Roosevelt, who's going to basically do something similar for white Americans in the 1930s. Now, of course, once we start mentioning race, this raises uh, a, a tricky problem for, for Franklin Roosevelt as a Democrat who was supported by the solid South of, of universally right. white Democratic voters. Uh, right. The problem there is they also are, are the the imposers of Jim Crow, and right. So how how does Roosevelt finesse that? Well, you know, he walks a very fine line. He walks a very fine line, um, and so I can give you some examples. I mean, one thing I think he does is he actually, in various ways tries to talk about even Lincoln as somebody who was not race conscious. You know, that, that, that somehow or other he actually tries to reinterpret Lincoln's emancipation as something that's not just for African-American slaves. So at one point Roosevelt says something like, you know, Lincoln, um, Lincoln's emancipation was not only for slaves, but of those of heavy heart everywhere. You know, so he kind of mm. <laughs> makes it very, very broad, uh, and, and then, in a way, tries to take the, the race issue out of the question. Um, he also has to, and you can see, you know, the kind of tricky maneuvering that goes on. For example, when the United States Senate in 1938 debates the question of federal anti-lynching legislation. Uh, so the NAACP starts working with different uh, politicians to bring this, this would be laws that would uh, increase federal oversight when lynchings occurred. And Southern senators, one after another, get up and they use basically a lost cause argument to speak out against this lynching legis- anti-lynching legislation. They say, you know, this would be just like the federal government intruding into Southern affairs the way they did during Reconstruction. That's the last thing we need. You know, that was corrupt. That kind of, you know, created these horrible conditions in the South. So they, they replay these lost cause arguments. And ultimately, in the end, I think, you know, well, Roosevelt himself did not support that legislation uh, you know, in part, I think he recognized that he himself was kind of stymied by uh, the Democrats from the South and, you know, in his own party uh, and, and could not get that law through So and, and, and didn't come out in support of it. But then, okay, so, so then 
At the same time, though, then you have, you know, the other side of Roosevelt who wants to sort of send a message, I think, to African-Americans, um, because especially in the North, they are a voting constituency, and increasingly they are voting Democratic. Uh, and so, you know, he'll send sort of these gestures, subtle messages, one of which I think, for example, is when he allows and Eleanor Roosevelt attends uh, Marian Anderson's outdoor concert in front of the Lincoln Memorial. So that, again, is sort of a moment where the New Deal administration seems to be in line with something that's a little bit more racially enlightened. It, it's a, yeah, a constant. Yeah, it's constantly a fine line. Um, one of the uh, other things I thought was really interesting in this book was your discussion of uh, the WPA slave narratives, which uh, yes. I, I know our listeners are all familiar with that project to interview uh, the few surviving former slaves. Uh, but I was struck by how different uh, the interviewers' interests were from those of the people being interviewed. Right. And, and what's interesting about the uh, WPA narratives, you know, to me, again, it's another indication of, of the way you have so many mixed, different agendas competing with one another about how to tell the story of the Civil War. So, for example, some of the WPA writers and interviewers were members of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Uh, there were even some UDC members who I think were the editors of the state WPA boards or something like that. And then there were also Negro units in the WPA um, and in the Federal Writers Program. And so there were also African Americans who went out interviewing former slaves. Uh, and they take, you know, very different forms. They have very different kinds of uh, ways in which they record this information, ways in which they present the information. As you can imagine, UDC women often kind of use those stories to, again, present their certain interpretations about the kindly and benign relationships under slavery. Uh, African-American interviewers, you see much more emphasis on the violence that was part of the slave relationship. So, so it's a very interesting, you know, you get, you get a kind of cacophony of approaches and voices uh, in some of those interviews. We are talking tonight with Nina Silber, author of This War Ain't Over, Fighting the Civil War in New Deal America. We're going to take a short break and come back and discuss the book some more. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Nina Silber, author of This War Ain't Over, Fighting the Civil War in New Deal America. We've been talking about ways that Civil War memory was used uh, to resist lynching legislation uh, on behalf of the UDC through Gone with the Wind. Uh, A lot of ways in which people sought to turn the clock back. Uh, Nina, there's also uh, efforts in the other direction. I will say in 2016 was the first time in my political lifetime a national politician could say he was a socialist and and, and people didn't keel over. Uh, it's even harder, I think, for people to recognize in the 1930s, uh, people could belong to the American Communist Party openly, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was seen as possibly a way out of the Depression for some people. Uh, yeah. there, was a, there was a left wing in America then that would make people blanch today, uh, uh, and they openly embraced Civil War memory as well. How, how did the left try to use Civil War memory? Right, well... Um, you know, it's funny. I, I wonder if people would blanch because often the message that came out of uh, American communists in the 1930s was very much kind of at least attempting to work in the American mainstream uh, mm-hmm. and to embrace kind of some some very foundational components of American history. Uh, and so for, you know, um, American communists embraced Abraham Lincoln, for example. I mean, they, they embraced the, the story of slave emancipation um, and, and sort of Lincoln's efforts in slave emancipation. They embraced the story of abolitionism, you know, and, and tried to, in, in some ways, tell the story and emphasize the story of John Brown. Um, you know, one example that I talk about in the book is the Jewish communist writer. Uh, his name was Mike Gold. Uh, mm-hmm. Some people know him. You know, he wrote a very popular best-selling book called Jews Without Money that was published in 1930. Uh, but then he did a lot of kind of Civil War kinds of writing, uh, and he wrote a 
play in 1936 called Battle Hymn, uh, and it was a play about John Brown and abolitionism. Um, it was produced by the Federal Theater, uh, which is part of the WPA. Uh, and, and actually, again, you know, to me, the sort of classic case, within a two-month period in 1936, the Federal Theater produced a play called Jefferson Davis, sponsored by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And this play, Battle Hymn, about John Brown, uh, that was written by a communist. So so it's such a kind of, you know, surprising and unexpected mix of perspectives. Um, so this play, Battle Hymn, you know, I think from the perspective of communists and from the perspective of somebody like Mike Gold, it was very important to tell the story of abolitionism and fighting slavery because, again, they believed that the theme of slavery continued to resonate in American culture, that, you know, the way workers were oppressed on the job, especially the way uh, workers were oppressed during the Depression uh, was a very, you know, almost like as if they were slaves, that this was a very relevant theme, um, which they wanted to call attention to it. And, and so one way to do it was to use the memory of abolitionism and, and people like John Brown to talk about that. So there's, uh, at the same time that there are, are people who are openly uh, popular front or even members of the American Communist Party, there's also a growing anti-communist movement uh, in the yes. United States, and they they don't they don't care for uh, certainly for that that approach, but they too right. uh, ad- adopt civil war ideas. Yes, and and again, I think um, you know one thing that happens is the way the 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 lost cause idea gets grafted onto an anti-communist message. Um, so, for example, you know, there are, are white Southerners who make the argument that uh, the, the Confederate tradition in its opposition to a strong centralized government is sort of at its root uh, better prepared than anybody else to oppose communism. Uh, and so at, at some point, in fact, the United Daughters of the Confederacy say there's nobody who's, you know, more fit than the daughters to exterminate communism. You know, that that, that is part of our tradition and it's part of the, the legacy that goes back to the secessionist movement. Uh, so, so, yes, there's, there's that going on. There is also, um, you know... Uh, Investigations, you know, so the, the 1930s, mm-hmm. it's actually 1938 that sees the first, uh, the, the start of the House Un American Activities Committee uh, in the United States Congress. And, and one of the things that they start doing immediately is looking at what they call communist influence. Well, I suppose in some cases it's true. I mean, there were actual communists in mm-hmm. the federal theater, uh, but they don't just look at plays like the one written by Mike Gold, they, you know, look at a whole bunch of plays that are coming out of the um, the New Deal and out of the federal theater program. You know, there's one very kind of not at all very radical play about Abraham Lincoln, which they say, you know, this is just communist propaganda. Uh, so there are, are, are a number of these plays that they attack um, and, and really try to kind of keep that influence um, at bay. In, especially as, in the federal theater. So as, as the decade of the 30s moves along, uh, the, the country 
was closer to the shadow of the Second World War. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, this, too, obviously calls out memories of, of the, uh, the Civil War. I was particularly eager to read uh, your chapter that in- invokes the movie Casablanca, which... Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, is, glad you, you know, that, I'm glad you got that, that in there, because I feel like that's one of... One of my little surprises. <laughs> it, it totally. In this book I, is what my does that have to do with the Civil War? Uh, so so how, again, do, how do you connect that? Well, right. So, so one of the things that I'm suggesting is, as the country does move toward World War II, and this goes back to what we were talking about, you know, the kind of anti-war tone that uh, existed at Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I think that, you know, many people in the Roosevelt administration, but also other people in American culture, prominent, um, you know, figures on the American scene, were concerned that Americans were not really prepared to take on this new global conflict because there was such a strong sense of disillusionment, such a sense that, you know, World War One had been this kind of, uh, that there had been no real moral purpose behind uh, the American effort in World War I. And so in order to convince people that World War II had a certain moral urgency, again, I think Abraham Lincoln comes to play a very prominent role in all of that. Um, you know, he, he is a figure, and, and you can see this in their many associations that are constantly made. Uh, you know, Lincoln fought slavery, and now we have to fight the kind of slavery that uh, fascists are promoting in Germany, you know, so there, that there are equations being made between the slavery of the Civil War period and now the wo- World War II period. And so Lincoln is kind of used as a figure to convince people that they, um, you know, that, that, that this is a fight that has a kind of moral imperative. Um, so then, yes, so, so I feel like it's a little bit of a leap, but, but I think I can, <laughs> I, I think the, the argument is compelling. Um, the movie Casablanca. Now, on the face of it, there's no Civil War connection, and Abraham Lincoln makes absolutely no appearance in Casablanca. I mm-hmm. readily admit that. However, I also think that there are kind of suggestions in the course of the movie that the Civil War is relevant for undertaking this new global conflict. And you know, one of the principal themes of, of the Casablanca film is that Humphrey Bogart's character, Rick, has to be convinced that, you know, to kind of give up his cynicism and to make his own kind of moral commitment to this new uh, conflict. You know, and that all comes to a head in terms of, uh, you know, Victor Laszlo, who comes with Ingrid Ber- Ilsa, you know, and, and, and he's going to help them get away, and, you know, he's got to take his moral stand. And, th- and that's a kind of big kind of turning point of that film. So there are indications in Casablanca that the Civil War has relevance. The first time it comes up is when Rick uh, and or Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman, you know, they're reminiscing, uh, and he's talking about, you know, their time together in Paris, and he says, I remember every detail. The Germans wore gray, and you wore blue. <laughs> so that, that, that's sort of, you know, one, one of the little indications of it. But to me, actually, the kind of bigger moment that suggests Casablanca's relevance or, or the way that a kind of Civil War memory, even in a very subtle way, is being used in that movie, and it happens when, um, you know, there's, a, an, again, a critical moment in the movie when, and I'm, is, is it the blue parrot, the other 
the, the guy who owns the other saloon, right. Sidney Green Street. <laughs> yeah. And Sidney Green Street comes to Rick and he says, well, I'd like to buy your saloon from you. Uh, and I'd like to buy Sam. You know, Sam is the African-American piano player. Mm-hmm. At which point, Rick, Humphrey Bogart says, I do not buy or sell human beings. And to me, that is a very kind of, it is the line that kind of, that, that emanates the spirit of Abraham Lincoln. You know, it's a line that, that is very much like the propaganda that was being used to say, you know, we fought slavery once before, and we're going to fight slavery again in this war. And, and so that's a kind of critical turning point in that movie when Humphrey Bogart is sort of saying, yes, or Rick, uh, is, is says, I'm going to make this stand, um, and, and I'm going to kind of move away from the, the cynicism and indifference uh, and embrace this cause again. And the this in turn leads to the the problem uh, just since you have with the, the lynching legislation in the 30s uh, right. as as cultural leaders that the government mobilizes to support the war yes. raise this idea of we're fighting against slavery uh, now southern white Americans have to turn and say wait a minute you're that means we're we're the bad guys we're the Nazis uh, well, and they're know, not quite willing actually- to accept that. Right, it does. There are certain tensions, and and again, I mean, I feel like a, there's sort of a fine line that has to be uh, walked here. So, on the one hand, you know, the the American government wants to mobilize two different constituencies. They want to mobilize African Americans to fight, and in order to mobilize African Americans to fight, they have to suggest that they're serious about fighting slavery, but. They, like you say, they also they don't want to alienate this other critical constituency of white Southerners. So you know, I see the federal government, and I, 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 they're kind of doing different things at the same time. You know, one thing that's interesting during the 1940s is a lot of um, military bases are named for Confederate commanders in that period. So I feel like that's that is a gesture. You know, so they're kind of making. In, you might say opposing gestures at the same time, that the federal government is sort of saying to white Southerners, we respect your legacy and your past, and also saying to African Americans, but we're also committed, or sort of committed. I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. the question, I think. We're committed to fighting a war against slavery. It's not clear, and I think this is what African Americans are saying, but are you also committed to fighting Jim Crow at home? And, and that's, that's, I think, you know, where the uh, there's more open-ended questions. Well, it is a, a fascinating uh, topic to handle. I, I started out with my comment that I wondered if, if this was sort of a reach for a topic when, when the book first yeah. crossed my desk. And uh, having read it, I, I feel enriched. I've, I've learned a lot about the 1930s, which I will work into my uh, online uh, survey course this summer, Good. but the uh, uh, it really does tell an interesting story. It really does uh, help, I think, the reader rethink things we thought we know about how the Civil War is interpreted and, and some classic landmarks like Gone with the Wind or Sandberg's Lincoln biography, and we can see their role a little more clearly. Uh, mm-hmm. it is a, it, say it's also a short book, which I, I really like when I'm doing a book a week. It's delightful to be able to absorb the book fully uh, uh, in seven days. Uh, I wish we had more time to talk about it, but we are at the end of our hour already. Uh, well, 
it's been great to talk about it. Uh, I've enjoyed talking about it, and, and I'm glad it was uh, enlightening for you as a reader. It, it definitely was. Readers, you will enjoy This War Ain't Over, Fighting the Civil War in New Deal America. Uh, its author, Nina Silbert, was our guest tonight. Nina, thanks for being on Civil War Talk Radio again. Jerry, thanks very much. It was a pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.